If we have fled to Jesus and taken refuge with him, we can trust in his promise to be with us in the storms of life. And in this, we can find an experience that is powerful encouragement, a hope that is an anchor for the soul. Well, hello and welcome to the Gospel Chapel podcast, where every week we're posting the audio of our sermons from this past Sunday. And this last Sunday we were in uh, Psalm 118, verses 1 to 9, and Hebrews chapter 6, uh, verses 13 to 20. So if you get your Bible out ahead of time, uh, that'd be great. In his 1948 book, The Pursuit of God, A.W. Tozer said this about faith. Faith is not in itself a meritorious act. The merit is in the one toward whom it is directed. Faith is a redirecting of our sight, a getting out of the focus of our own vision and getting God into focus. Sin has twisted our vision inward and made it self-regarding. Unbelief has put self where God should be and is perilously close to the sin of Lucifer who said, I will set my throne above the throne of God. Faith looks out instead of in, and the whole life falls into line. Well, that's uh, a powerful word for today because so many people say, look to yourself, look inward and find your truth and be your own anchor. But we know this past number of years has been anything but stable, anything but secure, anything but predictable. And we need an anchor that isn't just what we can conjure up. We need an anchor that goes deeper. We need an anchor for our souls. And what we're gonna learn today is that anchor is Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And turn in your Bibles to Psalm 118. We have two passages we're going to read this morning as we start Psalm 118. And then, if you want to throw your finger in Hebrews chapter 6. What's anchoring your life right now? And, And what gives you stability and safety and hope in this world? What what keeps you from falling into despair and hopelessness? How anchored is your life? Or perhaps life is feeling a bit untethered right now. Perhaps you're feeling like a ship adrift in a massive storm, and perhaps you're feeling that life's out of control and wondering when the room is just going to stop spinning. Perhaps you're in a place of despair and hopelessness or drift right now. What can we do? And this is already, we've hit on this with communion. Where do you go when life is crazy and you don't know what to do? Of course, we're in church. We're not supposed to feel that way. We're not supposed to say that life is out of control. Jesus is our anchor. He is our hope and our security. So we just come in the door and we say, how's your week? Fine. Freaked out, insecure, neurotic, and anxiety. (laughs) It's kind of an acronym. Fine. Because sometimes we're not doing fine. We're struggling to make sense of our lives and our world, even though we believe God is in control. 
And this is where belief has to lead our hearts, where the truth of God's promises and his proven character must support us in our exhaustion and our impatience with his timing. This is where being reminded of God's unfailing love and unchanging character and eternal commitment to us fulfilled at the cross is necessary. That's why the Lord's table is this continual reminder for our doubting minds and our failing hearts. God is trustworthy. He demonstrates his greatness. He manifests his character and he anchors his salvation for his people and who he is, what he has provided for us in Jesus Christ. So Psalm 118, let's stand together as we read this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as a helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. In Hebrews chapter 6, 13 to 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves. And in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So, when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that, by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And this is the word of the Lord. First thing we're going to look at is that God is trustworthy and he dem by demonstrating his greatness. <clears throat> Psalm, <clears throat> first from Psalm 118. There's two main sections in this uh, first section of the psalm, verses 1 to 4 and then 5 to 7. And then it kind of concludes with a chorus in verses 8 to 9. The first section is collective. It's speaking of, uh, it's calling the congregation uh, to communal praise. The first word in the psalm is a plural imperative. Give thanks, y'all. Everybody, give thanks. Uh, say, declare, plural, plural, plural. It's all of us together. The congregation is being called to praise here. Give thanks, celebrate, rooted in this one thing. For to eternity is his steadfast covenant committed love toward us. Everything in the first four verses is calling the community to celebrate the fact that God will never 
ever give up on his people. He will never give up to eternity his steadfast, faithful love over and over. And then the second section in verses five to seven, we switch to kind of a, this was the community called to worship and now a soloist stands up and sings, I called out to the Lord. We, we move from the plural to the singular. From everybody to, to, to one person standing up and saying, this is what God has done for me. He's giving testimony. He is witnessing to what God has done for him. I called to him. He answered me. Yahweh is with me. Yahweh is for me. I, actually, we, we, have, we have this in like, a bunch of words, I think five or six words. In, in Hebrew, it's two words. Yahweh to me. Yahweh for me. The covenant name of God to me. I will not fear. I will look on those who hate me in triumph. We move from a call to praise to a declaration of trust to a witness of God's working in this individual's life. The psalmist is bearing witness to the intervening work of God. He has demonstrated his greatness. To bear witness requires to us to experience an event. That's what a witness is. You can't go into the court going, well, I read about it on Facebook. Or, or I heard it on the news once. That actually kind of disqualifies you as a witness. You have to actually be personally involved and this is what John says, that which we have seen with our eyes, have heard with our ears, have touched with our hands, we declare to you the glory of Jesus Christ. Witness requires experience. Without that, a witness cannot take, take the stand in the court of law. And this is what's happening in this psalm. I have seen what God has done. I have, he has heard me. I cried out to him and he acted. In Psalm 118, Eight to nine, we have this repetition of a call. Take refuge in Yahweh. Don't trust in people. But what's the difference between taking refuge in something or someone and trusting? Aren't they kind of synonymous? Kind of, but they're different. To take refuge, this word here, and this is just from a theological, called the Theological Word Book of the Old Testament. Word studies on this Hebrew word. I, I like this, what they said in there. To seek refuge stresses the insecurity and self-helplessness of even the strongest of men. It emphasizes the defensive or external aspect of salvation in God, the unchanging one in whom we find shelter. So you see this word is often used of, of like a place of safety, an actual physical like, like, like a cave or, or a fortress or a tower or, or something where you can find a place of safety from the elements and from attack, very visceral, very physical. And he's saying, take refuge in God. Don't trust in people. You know, in this word for trust, most often throughout the Psalms applies to trusting God, but in this case, there's a contrast being made. So the author uses another word. He says, take refuge because trust in people isn't gonna lead to safety and stability and security. Those are things that only God can provide for you. And to expect people to be able to provide what only God can is foolishness. Based on the fact of God's covenant love and loyalty, and the eternal nature of his covenantal loyalty to us, and the witness of the psalmist 
that the, that the psalmist gives to, to what he's done in his own life, the conclusion is that God is more trustworthy in a very real and tangible way than anyone or any power could possibly be. God alone is trustworthy because only he can follow through on his word. Only he can demonstrate constant, committed, covenant loyalty. He is not fickle, nor does he change. God is committed to his people, and that will never change. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Second, when we go to Hebrews chapter 6, we have to remember first that the author of Hebrews is speaking to a, a, an audience of Jewish people who are being tempted to, to just kind of go, you know what, this new Jesus approach is a little uncomfortable. Actually, it's really uncomfortable and it's causing a lot of problems. So we're just going to dial it back and we're going to just go back to what we know. We're, we're, we're going to back off. We're, we're, we're not going to pursue this Jesus thing. We're going to go back to the predictability and stability in the way of life that was much simpler under Judaism. Living our lives, going to synagogue, and maintaining our culture and our identity in Judaism through following the Mosaic Law. We're just going to go back to that. But the author doesn't want to discount that heritage and the history and the Word of God in the Old Testament. But he desperately does not want them to abandon Jesus and go back to the old way of doing things. A new day has emerged, a new covenant, a, a, a better covenant that has taken place of everything that they ever knew has emerged in Jesus Christ. The old forms of religious routine served their purpose, but now they need to be replaced with Jesus. So in this passage, he starts out by reminding them of God's unfailing commitment to Abraham. And of the fact that when God made a covenant with Abraham, it was completely up to God to see it through. God swore by himself. He put himself on the line to seal a covenant and to make sure it happened. There was no one else to keep God accountable to his word. He has no one greater than himself to answer to. And so God called Abraham and promised him a land, a nation, that he would be a blessing to the whole world. Something only God could accomplish. And so God is the only party that passes between the pieces in Genesis 15 when Abraham makes the sacrifice. Now, normally in ancient Near Eastern custom, when a covenant was made, the two parties would pass between the pieces. And the imagery was there was, if either of us breaks the covenant, may I be as these animals that are split in two. But Abraham's asleep. And God himself passes between the pieces. It is a one-sided covenant. God says, I will make good on my covenant, and if I don't, may I become like these animals, split in two and killed. Abraham receives this massive promise, and God will follow through on it. And he will do it not just for Abraham, but his descendants. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the whole nation of Israel. And so God demonstrates his greatness and he is trustworthy. Secondly, God is trustworthy manifesting his character in 17 to uh, the first part of 18 in Hebrews chapter 6. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. God manifests his character through what he says. 
like Psalm 118 begins with this unchanging eternal covenant commitment of God, so too the author of Hebrews wants us to see the unchanging eternal character of God. And again, for the Jewish readers of, of Hebrews, the ultimate revelation of God is that he has not only spoken the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he has followed through with them and fulfilled all that he has said. God's promise was not just for Abraham, but for his descendants. In Genesis 15, God clearly stated that Abraham's future family would be enslaved 400 years and that God himself would rescue them and bring them to the land of promise. The exodus was God manifesting his character so his people could see that he fulfills his word. And he is king over all the earth. Over and over in Exodus we read, then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know who I am. Then you will get to know my character. And so God is trustworthy because he manifests his character in what he says and what he does. And when God promises David and his son that his son will build the temple, Solomon is raised up and God manifests his presence in the temple. And when God promises the nation will be sent into exile for their disobedience and the prophets warn the people that it's coming, it happens. And God's word says that I will raise up Cyrus to free the people and rebuild the temple. And we've been reading about that in Ezra the last number of, of weeks. He manifests his character over and over again. What he says comes to pass. He manifests his unchanging character. Over and over throughout biblical history, we see the trustworthy character of God come through over and over. He said it, and it will happen. So God demonstrates his greatness. God manifests his character. And thirdly, God is trustworthy, anchoring his salvation in 18 to 20. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters to the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And there's a lot of details and nuance to this that can go off in a number of of, of areas, but I want us to focus on this idea that God has anchored his salvation. God is trustworthy because he has given us an anchor for the soul. If we back up a moment, everything the author has declared in the last few verses leads up to this. There's a result clause here. So that, anytime you see so that, circle it, and look for what the author is saying because of everything I've just said, so that this would be the result, so that this would happen or so that you would grow in this area or walk in obedience in a certain way, so that. Circle that anytime you see it. In this case, it's not immediately what comes after that. There is a so that, so that by two unchangeable things, this is the agency by which this is how the outcome happens because of God's unchangeableness, because of his truthfulness, because of his work for us, the result that we might have powerful encouragement. That's the result he's seeing out of all of this. Because of who God is, because he is sworn by nobody greater than himself, because he has acted, because he is so trustworthy, we might have 
powerful encouragement. A very literal translation of this is so that, and then we kind of skip the agency part, powerful encouragement may be to we who have taken refuge, there's that refuge image again, to hold fast the set before us hope. Powerful encouragement may be to we who have taken refuge to hold fast to the set before us hope. Not great English, but I think it is necessary to focus on the key result the author wants us to experience, powerful encouragement. The reality of God's trustworthiness helps us to face the daily pressures and problems we experience. If we have fled to Jesus and taken refuge with him, we can trust in his promise to be with us in the storms of life. And in this, we can find an experience that is powerful encouragement, a hope that is an anchor for the soul. Now, what's an anchor? I can get Barry up here and he could tell us all about anchors on ships. Well, let's think of even a smaller thing. And I did a little YouTube short on this the other day, but an anchor that you used to just hang stuff in the drywall. Now, if you just put a screw in the drywall and hang a picture on it, how long is it going to last, Tony? Not long, right? But you take this little hunk of plastic with some threads and you screw it in first, and then you put the screw into that, and it holds it fast. An anchor for the soul. There's things that are going to weigh on our lives, and we need anchors so that we don't fall apart or get ripped to pieces. We need an anchor. The the, the metaphor here is of a sea anchor. It keeps a ship safe in harbor. It doesn't allow it to drift. If, If you don't anchor the ship, it'll just, you know, eventually the waves will just kind of push it, and it'll end up grounded on the shore or in a storm. It stops it from being tossed about and destroyed. The storm is still there, but the anchor holds us in safety. Keeps us from being smashed against the rocks of life in the middle of the storm. There is a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. It is in what Jesus has done for us, the work of atonement that he bought for us through the cross, the resurrection, his ascension to glory. Again, the author of Hebrews comes back to this wonderful reality, a more wonderful and mind-blowing thing for those who first read this, the, 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 the Jewish people who were thinking of just going back to being scared to enter the holiness of God. The author says, Jesus is the forerunner who went behind the veil. Our hope is behind the veil. In the very presence of the holiness of God. And Jesus went as a forerunner. Now, if somebody goes as a forerunner, what does that imply? There's more people to come. He's he's made the way in so that everybody else can go in with him. He has paved the way into the holy presence of God. So that we may have powerful encouragement and that you may be anchored in the reality of our hope to enter the holy presence of God that Jesus Christ secured for us. If we just go back a couple chapters, Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in our time of need.
We have an anchor. This anchor for our souls. A hope that enters the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus Christ has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. He's gone there ahead of us. He's gone there for us. For the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So what's anchoring your life right now? What gives you stability and safety and peace? What keeps you from falling into despair and hopelessness? How anchored is your life? Everything we've talked about this morning is all very theological. This is who God is, that God demonstrates his trustworthiness through, through demonstrating his greatness through manifesting his character and through anchoring his glorious purposes for us in Christ Jesus. Now, how practical is that? A lot of good theology. Well, sometimes the most practical thing that we need is also the most theological. We must abandon our desire to fix everything ourselves or find a way to make life work now on our terms for the good that we think we need and abandon ourselves to the promise and the purpose of God who doesn't always answer us the way we like or come through according to our expectations or even make visible the reality that we cry out for. In fact, God may be most at work when he is most invisible to us because that's how anchors work. You never see an anchor when it's actually doing its job. Got this from Charles Spurgeon. He actually wrote, like, the whole sermon is just on anchor. And I was tempted to steal the whole thing, but it, would, it was really long, but it's so good. But this last thing, this last point, he says, and I love this, an anchor is doing its job when you can't see it. Listen, listen to this, and here's the quote. And now lastly, and best of all, the anchor's unseen grip, which entereth into and within the veil. Our anchor is like every other when it is of any use, it is out of sight. When a man sees an, the anchor, it is doing nothing, unless it happens to be in a small stream anchor or a grapple in the shallow water. When the anchor is of use, it is gone. It went overboard with a splash. Far down among the fish lies the iron holdfast, quite out of sight. Where is your hope, brother? Do you believe because you can see? That's not believing at all. Do you believe because you feel? That is feeling, that is not believing. But blessed is he who hath not seen and yet hath believed. Blessed is he who believes against his feelings, aye, and hopes against hope. That is a strange thing to do, hoping against hope, believing things impossible, seeing things invisible. He who can do that hath learned the art of faith. Our hope is not seen. It lies in the waves, or as our text says, within the veil. I'm not going to run the figure too closely, but a mariner might say that his anchor is within the watery veil, for a veil of water is between him and it, and so it is concealed. Such is the confidence we have in God, whom we, having not seen, we love. The anchor is doing its work when you can't see it. I got a big bookshelf in my office. It's held to the wall with two anchors. Six by six, real heavy. I shouldn't have lifted it myself, but I can. It would tip over because it's an Ikea shelf. 
but two anchors and two screws is all it takes for this like 150 pound bookshelf loaded with books now to not fall over. But you can't see the anchors. Your life might be under tremendous pressure right now. What's the anchor? Listen to these truths that are yours because of God's trustworthy demonstration, manifesting an anchor of glorious purpose in Christ. Just close your eyes and listen to this. 1 Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have demonstrated your greatness throughout history, and we can look through your word and we can see over and over again that you are faithful. We can look back on our lives and we can say with the psalmist, I called out to the Lord and he answered me. The covenant God of Israel is for me. And Lord, though our lives may be under tremendous pressure right now, help us to stay anchored to that deep truth. And even though we can't see it and sometimes we don't feel it, the anchor holds us fast. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus said, if I go away, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and then I'm going to come back and take you to be with me, so that where I am, you may be also. And over and over again, you promise your presence with us. And so, Lord, help us to anchor our lives in whatever we're going through in life right now in this one key truth, that our anchor is in you, Lord Jesus, because great is your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together. We're going to sing a benediction together today, just a cappella. Great is thy faithfulness, just the first verse in the chorus. Great is thy faithfulness.
that great is your faithfulness to us, that on the solid rock we will stand. Go with us in this week. Watch over us. Help us to know that you're there. And even when we can't see it, when we don't feel it, we believe you're with us. Thank you for the stability that you can give us that nothing in this world can. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.